I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Internationally, people know about the president of El Salvador, Nayib Bukele, for a couple of reasons. Last month, Bukele proclaimed himself dictator of El Salvador on his Twitter in an apparent joke amid concerns about his increasing concentration of power. Bukele is this millennial sort of quote-unquote disruptive quasi-tech bro figure who decided to make El Salvador the first country in the world to accept Bitcoin as legal tender. It was the first day in the first country in the world to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. But as El Salvador rolled the cryptocurrency out, things didn't go quite as planned. The other thing is this supposed very dramatic reduction in crime and violence. El Salvador was not that long ago officially considered the most violent country in the world outside of an active conflict zone. El Salvador has long been considered one of the most dangerous countries in the world. And that is now no longer the case. The official murder rate, as tracked by the government, dropped very dramatically in the year or two after Bukele took power. According to Insight Crime, between January and July of 2020, only 697 murders were recorded, a huge drop from the same period the previous year when nearly 1,700 murders took place. Bukele has largely pinned his reputation and his popularity on the supposed achievement of bringing crime and violence way down in El Salvador in the, in the years that he's been in power. And that was the focus of our reporting when we went to El Salvador and in the months that we were working on this story, was basically answering the question, is this decline in the murder rate real? And the truth is much, much darker and much more complicated than what the government would have you believe. President Nayib Bukele has described himself as the world's coolest dictator. He's made Bitcoin an official currency of El Salvador, rallied the military behind him, and pushed his country towards authoritarianism. The recently elected president, who promised a tough stance against gang violence, reported the beginning of a dramatic drop in the country's crime rate. This is Vice News Reports. I'm David Noriega, correspondent for Vice News. So we're on this street corner in Santa Tecla, which is a small municipality in the, in the kind of larger metro area of San Salvador. And it's a very quiet residential sort of leafy street corner, right? There's a couple of small shops, pedestrians, um, it's it's very serene, very calm. Can you tell me where we are right now? Where is this in the stomach? The reason that we're there is because we are with um, a woman named Yvette Toledo. And Yvette is the mother of two children, Karen and Eduardo, who were 20 and 18. Uh, in this moment, we're just in the street where 
who disappeared in September of last year, on September 18th. And she took us to this neighborhood, to this specific street corner, because this was the last place that Karen and Eduardo were seen a lot. So what happened that day is still very mysterious. Um, but what we do know is that her daughter, Karen, went to this street um, to visit her best friend. Her brother, Eduardo, went to meet up with her, and they left that area together. And we're seen walking down that street on some uh, security footage. And there's surveillance footage of them walking down the street together, and there's footage of them inside the taxi. And that is pretty much the last that's known of them. What happened to Karen and Eduardo that day is not unusual in El Salvador. It's not unusual for people, especially young people, to leave their homes and never come back. And this phenomenon of the of, of the disappeared is something that plays a very important role in the history of El Salvador, not just the present day with, you know, gang violence and gang crime, but going back to you know, at least the 1980s and um, the civil war that has sort of really defined the modern and contemporary history of El Salvador. There were basically two sides, right? This was the leftist insurgency against a right-wing military government backed by the United States. The Reagan administration vowed today to do everything it could to help El Salvador's government win the war against leftist guerrillas. State Department spokesman John Hughes said that included moving U.S. military training personnel closer to battle zones, and a Defense Department official said it could also mean increasing the number of U.S. servicemen. Today's statement served to confirm a White House source story in today's Washington Post that President Reagan feels the El Salvador situation is at a critical stage. The principal actor on the left, on the insurgency side, was the Frente Farabundo Martí para la Liberación Nacional, the FMLN. On the other side was the government and, in a larger sense, the United States, which was engaged in this Cold War series of proxy conflicts across Latin America trying to prevent communism and socialism from coming to power uh, in the way that it had in, for instance, Cuba. Below, in the yard of the police station, heavily armed police return from making their rounds. There are countless instances of deaths and disappearances in which they've been found to have played a role. Yet they are armed with NATO weaponry, which the United States is continuing to supply. This headquarters itself is widely known to have been used to torture victims. Yet, despite the evidence, little pressure appears to be being used on the authorities here to end the day-to-day -day violations of human rights. So 
So when the war comes to an end with the peace agreement in 1992, the two sides of the war become the main official political actors in El Salvador in the form of two political parties. On the one hand, you have the FMLN, which goes from being an armed insurgent guerrilla movement to being a formal left-wing political party. And then you have ARENA, which is a right-wing conservative party. The years after the official end of the civil war in El Salvador is when we see the emergence of what later become the gangs we know today. And the story is complicated, but the very quick version of it is basically that um, people who fled El Salvador during the civil war to the United States as refugees and their children, who were raised in the United States, primarily in California and cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco, joined street gangs while in the United States, were subsequently imprisoned and then deported back to El Salvador. And once back in El Salvador, sort of brought back this kind of street gang and prison gang mode of organization that they had learned in the United States and started applying it in El Salvador. There are two huge and powerful street gangs in El Salvador, Marisal Vitrucha, or MS-13, and Barrio Diaz y Ocho, or 18th Street. They've been fighting a brutal battle for territory for decades. But now they are also fighting a new enemy, as the police and military have been ordered to crush them. Violence has now risen to levels that haven't been seen since the country's civil war. So, over the years, these these gangs become increasingly sophisticated, organized criminal structures, to the point where, today, they run and profit from a wide variety of activity in the criminal underworld. And and over time, these criminal organizations become powers unto themselves, right? They essentially control a lot of the territory and a lot of neighborhoods in cities in El Salvador. They are the de facto authority. And during this time, the government of El Salvador as, you know, run by both the right-wing ARENA and the left-wing FMLN parties, also has to contend with the gangs. And they do so using a variety of different tactics. During the right-wing ARENA government in the early 2000s, I think officially in 2003, the government implements some of the old tactics that it used to use during the Civil War under the name Mano Dura, which literally just means hard hand or heavy hand or iron fist, right? Where it tries to use this heavily militarized brute force approach to dealing with the gangs. Again, with the support and the financing of the United States. This means openly engaging the gangs in warfare. Often it means disappearing suspected gang members. This is highly ineffective. Some experts whom I trust actually believe that the Manolura policies significantly contributed to making the gangs as large and as widespread and as powerful as they are today, that, that, that it sort of poured gasoline on the fire more than anything else. And given the failure of these policies, over time, the government starts pursuing other options. What those other options eventually came to entail was basically treating the gangs as another political actor, sort of like another constituency that must be negotiated with in order to come to an agreement that is acceptable to both sides. So the first known major negotiations between the government and the gangs are what's known as La Tregua, or the truce, which dates to 
around 2012 under the government of the FMLN, right? But since then, in the decade since then, it's been discovered that both parties, on the right and on the left, engaged in this sort of secret deal-making with both the MS-13 and the two factions of the 18th Street Gang. And as that's been discovered over the years, it's been profoundly discrediting and damaging to these parties in the eyes of the people. And so in comes Nayib Bukele. This is the context that he steps into, right? And he first becomes a well-known nationally political figure as mayor of the capital, San Salvador, in 2015. And he presents himself as this sort of outsider, even though he, he isn't really, right? He started his political career in the FMLN, one of the major parties. He comes from a very rich family, so he comes from money and he comes from power. But he still manages to sort of cleverly present himself as, as this outsider. So after a, a pretty popular stint as mayor of the capital, he leaves the FMLN in order to run for president and eventually winds up creating his own party, which sort of presents itself as this sort of third way, this third option. And so he runs for president in 2019 and he trounces the opposition. Right? He wins with 53% of the vote, and the next guy gets something like in the low 30s or something like that. So he really rides into office and enters office with this ridiculously high approval rate. So when Bukele comes to power, there is a lot of focus on the cult of personality that surrounds him. And, and his sort of image or his brand as this kind of disruptive millennial president who's shaking things up. To cast his ballot, he brought all the confidence, swagger, and even the black leather jacket of a rock star. And he begins to direct as much attention as he can to this idea that he is the one president who's finally addressing and solving the problem of violence and the gangs. So he he spends a ton of money and resources publicizing his security policies and publicizing the fact that murders, officially speaking, the official murder rate has in fact dramatically declined during the time that he's been in power. So he starts doing this thing, which is a sort of recurring publicity stunt. And it starts very soon after he takes office, in July 2019, where when there is a day in El Salvador without a single murder, or, or supposedly a day without a single murder, he goes out and publicizes it, right? He puts it on Twitter or makes an announcement and sort of celebrates for the benefit of the country that there's been a day without any homicides. Un tweet enviado por el propio Bukele resume en una frase el éxito del ambicioso plan que ha puesto en marcha contra las maras o pandillas. And throughout this time, Bukele is really making a point of stressing that he is bringing crime down without negotiating with the gangs, right? So whereas past governments had to strike secret deals with the gangs in order to achieve anything, he says he's the first one who's really actually solving the problem and not negotiating with these, these terrorists, these criminals. And so that brings us to the present day, right? Bukele has been in power for a couple of years. He credits himself with having brought 
the murder rate dramatically down and for finally controlling the gang problem. But all throughout this time, there are people, sort of ordinary Salvadoran people and also sort of human rights organizations who are trying to bring attention to the phenomenon of the disappeared, right? And they're saying, well, maybe this story about murders going down and crime going down isn't as simple as the government says that it is because even if people aren't turning up dead, they're just disappearing entirely. And a few cases, you know, a, a few of the many thousands of, of cases of disappearances wind up becoming very public and wind up getting a lot of attention. And one of those is the case of Karen and Eduardo Guerrero, the children of Yvette Toledo. Unlike many families who are terrified of bringing attention to the fact that a family member of theirs has disappeared, Yvette brings as much attention to it as possible. She talks to the media. She goes on social media. She has uh, her kids' friends post things. She actually organizes this like little march. And then eventually she has this press conference. And we went to this press conference that she had. It was, it was, uh, the, the, this, this happened during the time that we were in El Salvador. And the reason for the press conference, the thing that motivated Yvette to bring people together in this sort of conference room in this hotel, was that in response to the amount of attention that her case was getting, the government of El Salvador decided to go out and basically attack her. Tenemos acreditado dentro del dentro de la investigación esa relación y es lo que oportunamente le vamos a presentar al juez. Hay una relación entre las víctimas y los victimarios y esa relación es por el consumo o la venta de droga. So the Minister of Public Safety uh, a very high-ranking person in Bukele's government, had gone out in public and made this announcement that Karen and Eduardo Guerrero had disappeared because they were involved in drugs. There was a drug-related relationship at the bottom of this case, and that explains the disappearance of these two young people. Muy Este, la presencia de los medios, este, gracias por acompañarnos, por estar aquí, por dar cobertura a estos sucesos tan dolorosos como, como familia. Yvette decided to hold this press conference to basically defend herself, defend her family, and clear the name of, of her family, her children, and, and herself. Que como madre lamento que las autoridades del Estado tengan un discurso que revictimice y estigmatice a mis hijos. Mis hijos están desaparecidos. Quiero aclarar contundentemente que mi hija Karen Ibet, mi hijo Henry Eduardo Guerrero Toledo, no tenían vínculos con pandillas ni ninguna estructura del crimen organizado. And when I talked to her, one of the things that she explained to me was that she wasn't just offended and indignant that the minister had, had disparaged her, her kids in this sort of distasteful and offensive way. She was actually very afraid because the minister had basically implied that her kids, and, and by extension her, 
had ties to the gangs. And when you have ties to one gang, that, that makes you a target for the rival gang. In the day or two after Yvette's press conference, the murder rate just suddenly skyrocketed from one day to the next. The, the, the number of homicides that are happening on the streets in El Salvador, and again, these are sort of countable homicides. So people getting shot, killed, left to die on the street just goes dramatically up. And nobody is really able to explain why that's happening. To find out, we went straight to the source, which is someone inside MS-13. And that's after the break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. we had always planned on interviewing someone from MS-13. That interview almost didn't happen because of the sudden spike in violence. And the experience of going to meet him was honestly really wild. It's, it's, I've done this kind of thing before, and it's really rare for me to actually feel scared. But this was a time when I actually felt scared. Do you need a clap? Yeah. Like here? He was just, like, openly hostile and very suspicious. He greets us waving around a gun, like an old revolver, which I can, I can see that it's loaded. And eventually it gets to a point where he's like, drink a beer with me. So we all sat down. We all drank a beer. We drank the beers really fast. And... I don't know. He, he, after that point, just decided that we were cool, and he relaxed, and the beer helped settle my nerves. And from that point on, everything was fine, and we turned on the cameras and started the interview. Listo, ya grabando, oficialmente. ¿Usted a qué estructura pertenece? Soy de la Mara Salvatrucha. MS, 13. So one of the first things that I ask him is... What's been going on? Like, just in these last few days, there's been this sudden spike in murders. You know, what explains that? Nosotros, desde que, desde que hemos estado acá en los últimos cinco días, ha habido una ola de violencia fuerte. Subieron muchísimo los homicidios. ¿Eso a qué se debe? And his response was basically, this is something that we do periodically, and we call it 
Semana Loca. Which means crazy week. And we do this basically to send a message to the government that reminds them that they are not the ones in charge. That we are the ones in charge, the gangs, and that we are the ones who determine how many people live or die on any given day. This question of the gangs negotiating directly with the government is really what's at the crux of a lot of Salvadoran politics. Around 2012, it was revealed that the government at the time, the government in FMLN, left-wing government at the time, had been secretly negotiating with the gangs to get them to call essentially a ceasefire. And the terms of the negotiations were sort of established uh, in a way that, that, that repeated itself in subsequent administrations and subsequent negotiations, where basically the gangs pushed the government for benefits, which includes everything from better conditions for gang members in prison to direct cash transfers, right, to just money given to the gangs. And in return, the gangs reduce the number of murders. They reduce the violence, and that makes the government look better. That's the basic exchange. It varies from government to government and from negotiation to negotiation, but that's basically how the gangs make deals with the government. And the crucial thing is that when Bukele came to power, he was very, very insistent in saying that he would never negotiate with the gangs, that he would be the only politician, basically, to actually control the gangs without ever striking secret deals with them. And he still insists that he hasn't. But as it turns out, and a lot of very good local investigative journalists in El Salvador, most of them from an outlet called El Faro, have proven over the last couple of years that's not true. There actually have been secret negotiations between the Bukele government and MS-13 and both factions of the 18th Street Gang pretty much from the very beginning. So I asked the gang leader while we were interviewing him, you know, what's the deal? Is it true or not? And he says, you know, in short, yes, of course it's real. So at this point, I think it's worth sort of directly asking the question that has motivated me the whole time I've been doing this reporting, which is, is it true or not that murders have gone down dramatically in El Salvador? And the answer, obviously, is complicated. Most people agree Yes, murders have, in fact, gone down in El Salvador. However, A, they haven't gone down as much as Bukele says they have, and B, to the extent that they have gone down, it's not a result of his security policies. If you look at the graph, right, for like the, the, the daily homicide rate in El Salvador, yes, the line goes dramatically down after 2019 when Bukele takes power, but it actually started going down well before that. It started going down like three or four years before that. There's a very clear, very dramatic downslope that Bukele is not plausibly responsible for because he takes office in the middle of it. The reason for that is exactly what I heard from the gang member, from the MS-13 guy whom we interviewed. It's that the gang started using murders as a means of negotiating with the government. So the gangs were already reducing the number of murders when Bukele took power of their own volition, not because Bukele made them, but because they wanted to in order to better negotiate with the state. Secondly, the second part of this question, 
have the murders gone down as much as that official rate would lead you to believe? The answer, in short, is no. And the reasons for that are something that I learned in a number of interviews with a number of people, probably the most revealing of which was an interview with a police officer, a current active duty police officer. And he told me, basically, there is constant manipulation of official statistics by the government. There are lots of murders that you never hear about, right? Those famous days without a murder that Bukele celebrates, for example, every now and then. Often what happens is there have been murders that day. They'll just put the murders on the next day's count, right? I've also heard from other sources that there are murders that simply never get reported, right? The, 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 the numbers basically get buried. In short, they cook the books, right? They make the stats look better than they are. And finally, this brings us back full circle to the story of Yvette Toledo and her two children. There's the giant elephant in the room, which is the disappearances, right? Even if a day goes by without a, without a murder, meaning a murder, a, a, a murder that counts as a murder because there's a body, people say, you know, okay, but five people disappeared from San Salvador that day. We have no idea where they went. That was the last day that they were seen. What about them? Do they not count as murders? And the answer to that question is, officially speaking, no. They don't. So the conclusion here, I think, is that this is not just a, basically a PR strategy to control the optics, the surface-level optics of the violence. But given that nothing fundamentally, materially is changing all that much, it's also very precarious and, for that reason, very dangerous because this could fall apart at any given moment and basically sink the country back into chaos. Over the holidays, just a couple days before Christmas, which was a few weeks after we had left, um, they found Karen and Eduardo. They found their bodies in a, a mass grave, sort of on the outskirts of the city. Yvette sent me this WhatsApp message um, after I asked her how she was feeling. It really hit me when I got it. Um, she describes how her feelings have obviously changed. It, it's no longer so much wondering where they are, but now it's just feeling the pain of their absence. Ahora mi, mi sentimiento es diferente, pues ya no es de que dónde están. O sea, es como que me duele su ausencia, me duele saber cosas que no quise haberme dado cuenta nunca de cómo que le hicieron dealing with having heard details about what happened to them that she wishes she had never heard. Entonces me duele esa parte. Estoy teniendo pesadillas por las noches. We think about these stories on these these big picture societal levels, but for the people that they happen to the stories don't end. Even if this chapter of it is over, this is going to affect and define Yvette for the rest of her life. And that starts now. Pues todos los días lucho con ellos y todos los días voy superando algo y aprendiendo algo siempre. 
This episode was produced by Sarah Cavedo and reported by David Noriega. Special thanks to Juanita Ceballos and Salvador Sagastizado. Vice News Reports is produced by Sophie Cazes, Jen Kinney, and Sarah Cavedo. Our senior producers are Ashley Cleek, Adiza Egan, and Sam Greenspan. Our associate producers are Steph Brown and Adriana Rodriguez. Sound design and music composition by Steve Bone, Fran Bandy, Natasha Jacobs, and Kyle Murdoch. Our executive producer and the VP of Vice Audio is Kate Osborne. Janet Lee is senior production manager for Vice Audio. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasolka. Our theme music is by Steve Bone. I'm Ariel Zemras. I know podcast hosts say this all the time, but seriously, it would be great if you could take the time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find the show. Vice News Reports drops every Thursday, so be sure to check back in next week.